Coming up next, the bookening finally gets to a much-requested, much-beloved classic about rabbits. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by two exceptional gentlemen of podcasting. The, I'm going to say, the hazel and the bigwig of podcasting. Or, what's what's Hazel's brother's name? Danny? What's his name? Oh, uh... Bucko? <laughs> yeah, Bucko. Ribbons? What is his name? He just... The, it would have been there. Yeah, I know. I blew it. The, he's the psychic one. Yeah. Uh, it is. There's the leader, the muscle, the psychic, the storyteller, and... Fiverr. Uh, Fiverr. Fiver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't litigate which one of us is which rabbit. I'm not sure which rabbit we would all want to be. I mean, to me, the hero of this story is Bigwig. I'll just say that. But... You like you Bigwig? Bigwig's... Bigwig's pretty pretty cool rabbit as far as yeah, rabbits go yeah he's got that tuft of hair at the top of his head too yeah yeah he's he's got some epic scenes old bigwig but in case you're wondering folks we're talking about watership down now what would you guys consider to be a better piece of intellectual property watership down or blackhawk down mm, i don't know it's a tough one brandon your thoughts that's that's really hard, Nathan. Probably, probably Black Hawk Down. It's kind of what I think. Yeah, it's pretty great. Ewan McGregor has to remove a bullet from someone's leg or something like that. That main that main actor in that movie definitely has lasted, right? What was his I name? Mean, I, I think he's still alive, probably. Josh Hartnett. Josh, Josh Hartnett. Yeah, he's certainly had his moment of fame. Wasn't he in that? And then in that other, the Pearl Harbor movie, and that was about it. He was in Pearl Harbor. He was, I think he might have tried to come back. I don't know that it quite worked, but I think he, he mounted one. He was in some HBO prestige thing or something like that. I don't know. I don't really keep up with the, your, the, our resident Hartnet head is Brandon. So <laughs> you, you can tell us, give us all the context that we need on Josh Hartnet. Yeah. Let's, let's do a Josh Hartnet special episode. Have I even introduced he has you guys? A, he, he has a uh, TV show called Die Heart. That's great. And the episode titles are things like Bad Boys, Live Free or Die Hard, True Lies, Man on Fire. Oh, you know what? Isn't that the Kevin Hart's TV show, actually? Oh, is it? Die Hard? I think so. uh, yeah, yeah, that probably is. But he... Okay. Yeah, you're right. Are you just confusing people's whose name has the syllable heart? No. In it? He gets credited on... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten episodes of Die Hard. Hmm. I wonder if, as he was filming Black Hawk Down, he imagined himself being not even the first lead in a show named after Kevin Hart called <laughs> Die Hard. <laughs> Starring Kevin Hart and John Travolta. <laughs> 
not a joke. Uh, uh, what should they call that show? Like die. That's dead, no, so. There's only careers? ten episodes, and he's in all. Uh, he's in all episodes. He plays himself, and so does Kevin Hart. But John Travolta plays Ron Wilcox. Oh, good. And Jean Reno plays Claude Vandeveld. Wow. Remember Jean Reno from... Oh, uh, yeah. I love Jean Reno. Godzilla, Ronan, all kinds of stuff. That guy ruled. He's uh, the original... Is the helicopter pilot in the original Mission Impossible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Leon the Professional, all kinds of great stuff from old Jean... Fun fact, I tried to walk into Black Hawk Down, I think I was 16, and the theater guy was, it was an R-rated movie that we were all going to see, and I had been going to R-rated movies for years at that point, nobody ever stopped me, I don't know if they actually care, or I never had anyone care, but the one time it felt like someone cared was the guy who was going to sell me my ticket to Black Hawk Down. And he was like, I'm going to need to see some ID, sir. And then he said, ha, 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 just kidding. And sold me my ticket. Wow. <laughs> All right. There you go. Jake and Brandon are so stunned by this, the greatness of that anecdote, the interest that it brought, the narrative power that propelled us through those minutes of conversation that they are literally speechless folks. That's right. Like Jasmine. You've <laughs> yeah. I, I won't be silent. She won't be silent, and and they won't be silent either. But they were for a moment after I told my probably the number one anecdote that I've ever told, and definitely the best anecdote that any one of us has told. Hey, I haven't even introduced you guys. We got Brandon, Brandon Hartnett, Chastine. Yeah. If you're a lady, you listen to this podcast because your heart has been netted by the dulcer tones of Brandon and. Uh, uh, Brandon, why don't you give an appropriately awesome introduction to the other gentleman that graces the podcast? No, nah, Nathan, I think you should do it. I think I introduced him last time. I I'm, always... really curi- I'm really curious to see how you will introduce him today. I'm Josh Hartnett, so who is he? If you're Josh Hartnett, he must be Harrison Ford. There you go. Nice. You, you guys are both in Hollywood Homicide, one of the greatest... <laughs> The great oh, pinnacle right? of Harrison Ford's <laughs> <laughs> career and a movie that I think I saw for some reason, although I have very little memory of it. <sighs> I'm guessing Harrison Ford so. has about the same amount of memory about it as I do. Yeah. Uh, listen, he's Jake Menzel. Jake Harrison Ford Menzel. Yeah. He shoots first. Uh, that was the joke I was about to make. Always a step ahead of me. Always a step ahead of you. Except for if you are Harrison Ford, then... I'm on the run. I'm a step ahead of everybody. You're on ahead. You're you're a step ahead of everyone else. I mean, Greedo wasn't yep. a step ahead of Han. I mean, I guess he sort of was yeah. in, in in the addition that we all love. He he fired his gun at Han. He was just a really bad shot. <laughs> Do they make Greedo shot first T-shirts? McClunky. I'm McClunky. Sure they make, yeah, I'm sure when, they make McClunky. McClunky. When when he was being released from the carbonite and he was blind. Mm-hmm. Chewbacca was always a step ahead of him when he was leading him. That's so true. Guess, does, and does that, that make you the Chewbacca of podcasts? Nathan's Nathan. the Chewbacca. <laughs> yep. Jake is cool as ice, <laughs> and I'm always leading the way. <laughs> and Jake lies flat on his stomach and floats. <laughs> and Nathan's large and hairy. Yeah, and I'm large <laughs> and hairy. Here. <laughs> it's a big walking carpet. Man, I thought that line was funny when I was a baby. I was like, she just hey, called was, him a big walking carpet. Babies. Yeah. <laughs> 
She, she acknowledged that this costume is lame in the middle of the movie. I've never been a big Chewbacca guy. I was so happy when he got blown up in that one Star Wars movie, and then they cowardly thought he was finally dead. <laughs> finally, they got him. <laughs> they put that dog down. Listen, speaking of things that are down, Blackhawks are down. Waterships are down. Waterships Can you think are of down. Anything else that's down? Any other famous IP that has the word down? Uh, Downy? The R- quilted R- quicker picker upper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about Robert Downey Jr. No, no. That would have been too culturally aware. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 to mention the biggest movie star of the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> would have been far too culturally aware. Listen, I'll tell you what's not, what's exactly the right amount of culturally aware, though, is the context that Brandon's about to give us of Watership Down. Never One of back my f- down. Earthbound n- and down. All kinds of things. Eastbound and down. down downtown Abbey. <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? Downtown Abbey? Downtown Abbey? Everybody yeah. remembers Downtown that's what Abbey. I, that's, how, that's what I remember, yeah. Never seen an episode of Downtown Abbey. <laughs> Man down. Party down. The rundown. Countdown. White House fun. down. Down Periscope. Chinatown? China no. down. <laughs> it just showed up in the search. Brandon, we need context. Quigley Down Under. There you go. Oh, the ultimate go. movie with the down in it. Okay. Top three intellectual properties with down in them. I'm going to say Quigley Down Under. Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down. And the number one spot. We're talking about it. Watership Down. And Brandon. Runner up uh, goes to Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, actually, that's true. That movie rocks. At least I remember it rocking from my childhood. I've not seen it since. Listen, Brandon, you're the contextual Texan. You provide much needed context for this work. And mm-hmm. you're going to tell us all about the genesis of a very beloved book. A book I think I've seen more people wear Watership Down t-shirts than any other literary property. And by that, I mean I've seen exactly one person wear a Watership Down t-shirt. But can you name another book... Where you've seen, besides Harry Potter, I guess, but... Lord of the Rings. Yeah, okay, fine. Can you Chronicles name... Chronicles of Narnia. A th- have you actually seen a Chronicles of Narnia t-shirt, though? Yeah. Disney did a whole bunch of them. Oh, okay, okay. Can you it's name a, a book that hasn't been adapted into a popular movie? Which I realize Watership Down has been adapted into movies, but not good or popular ones. Tons of Shakespeare plays. Do they count? I have seen Shakespeare shirts. Okay, well, Jake, you're kind of ruining my premise here, but... Sorry, I only speak facts. I think I still submit to you Watership Down is one of a handful of t-shirts that I've seen that have been made by certainly of the books we've read that have been done in the 20th century that haven't been made into popular fantasy movies. Except that. Watership Down is the one that gets slapped on a t-shirt. People are just like, I want to own Watership Down. I want to, I want to present to the world that I'm a Watership Down kind of person because I know I'll meet friends and influence other people who also like Watership Down. So, anyway, Brandon's going to get down, speaking of down, <coughs> with some great context for Watership Down. Yeah. Let's get started. You talked about, this is kind of one of those books that people have really wanted us to talk about for a while, right? Since we first and, got started. Yeah. Since season one, since two or three books and we're doing yeah. this show, you guys should do Watership Down has been a refrain since like 
And I've been resisting and snootily assuming that the book was stupid for that entire time. And boy, do I have egg on my face, but we'll talk more about that in baggage. Yeah. Anyway. Well, this book came out in 1972, and it was first rejected by a handful of publishers, but then a guy named Rex Collings got a hold of it. 2,500 copies, and immediately British critics were all over it. They compared him to Animal Farm, J.R.R. Tolkien's works, Milne's works. And so then just a year after that, Penguin got a hold of it and they put it in their Puffin Books children's series. One of the issues with the book at first was apparently some people thought he was borrowing a lot from this guy named R.M. Lockley's nonfiction study, The Private Life of Rabbits. Was that a problem? I I don't guess it was because (laughs) really when it came down to it, the first publishers turned it down because it was too straightforward and realistic and not written in a children's style, they thought. Rex Collings thought he would take a risk on it, and boy, did he win. By um, the end of 1972, it had won the Carnegie Medal in Literature, and also the next year it got the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. And then in 74, Macmillan published the first United States edition, and then it just went. It just started selling copies like rabbits having rabbits. So here are some of the reviews of it in the New York Review of Books. I'm just starting right with the prestige of this book, so people kind of understand what we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a big um, The New York Review of Books called it a relief to read of characters who have honor and dignity, who will risk their lives for others. Some other person said it falls short of Alice, Love Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and The Wind of the Willows. But he predicted it would find its true audience mainly among the people who have made a cult of Tolkien, among ecology-minded romantics and all those in need of a positive statement, not too subtle, but not too blatant either about the future of courage, native simplicity, the life force, and so on. And then I found an the interesting... The life force and so on. You yeah, know what? Yeah. I, I want to disagree with that reviewer because they sound like a tool, but they're absolutely right about everything. I yeah. mean, Tolkien nerds, ecology nerds, like they, they, they accurately described the Venn diagrams that have to overlap for someone to really feel, feel spoken to by this book. You being sarcastic, Nathan? No, no. I think he's being sincere, and also the fact that the reviewer gives it a negative comparison to Alice and Wind in the Willows. Was that the same one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, that part was stupid. I, I well, yeah. and also I think that this critic just didn't realize that that cult of Tolkien and ecology minded romantics would become a very dominant voice in that they'd win. Yeah, right. Yeah, fiction, so that those people are the ones that. They, yeah, like Jake said, they won. So No, he's basically the critic's just like, this is a good book for nerds. And yeah, the nerds are but, like, yeah. I mean, it's not like that did any harm to it. It struck it rich. It, it ended up becoming a bestseller. And it was on the bestseller list apparently for eight months. Uh, this is, so most of this is coming from some, just some obituaries I found because one of the fun things about him is he just, he died in 2016. So. There are some really high quality, like New York Times obituaries, things like that, just that are out there in interviews. We're gonna, I'm going to read some from an interview from him. So there's just a lot of material out there to dig through. But anyways, Avon paid eight hundred thousand dollars for the paperback rights. Wow! And became a Penguin's all-time bestseller, estimated fifty million copies in print, and in eighteen languages worldwide. So this is a huge book. This became a very, very huge book along the lines of. Not quite the size of a Harry Potter, but still, it's a big deal. The movie, I don't remember when the movie came out. It's a fairly famous and beloved piece of art in its own right. Say, 78. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a big fan of it. 
but he didn't really like the movie. He thought it changed his rabbits, and he just did not like seeing that done. But And then we have a fairly recent Netflix special that was made, too. I don't know if either of you guys have seen that one. I tried to watch a little bit of no. it after the book, and the animation's just kind of lame. It's weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird animation. It um, just looks like they didn't have a lot of money or something. Like, it's it's just kind of bad. Yeah. But anyways, this allowed him by 1974 to become a full-time writer. And at that at this point in his life, he was in his mid-50s. So he's one of these guys who became a writer pretty late in life, actually. And so he would write some other things. He's pretty well known for Plague Dogs, which I think he actually considered to be better. He he was more he was more fond he was fonder of Plague Dogs than he was of Watership Down. And then another one that he really liked, like Sharkadelic or something like that. Shark what, what's it called? It's not Sharkadelic. That's it's called Shardic, I'm gonna pronounce Shark- it. Shardic, thank you, Nathan, not mm-hmm. Sharkadelic. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Sharkadelic's the better name. You missed an <laughs> opportunity there. Sharkadelic. Shardic yeah. is you know, yeah, we we can't litigate Shardic on this podcast. We'll do Shardic in year twenty, but Sharkadelic, we didn't miss an opportunity. We found an opportunity because we can write Sharkadelic. Oh, I think we should write Sharkadelic, the musical. Shark, man, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be awesome. <laughs> Move over, Lin Manuel. <laughs> yeah. So, and then after that, he would have a career where he wrote middling pieces of fiction that not that never lived up to what Watership Down was. But that's not to downplay the masterpiece that Watership Down is. I think we're all, not to spoil things from the get-go, people probably are wondering and probably a little anxious about what we think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I speak for all of us in that we loved this book, right? This, it, it lived up to the hype. Yep. So Absolutely. 100%. So, but yeah, but as happens with uh, a lot of writers, he, his other works never quite lived up to what this was. Apparently, he would write, though he was really committed. He was a hard worker. He wrote a thousand words a day. And apparently, before each uh, writing session, he would read aloud from Paradise Lost and The Fairy Queen or Moncrief's translation of Proust, which is a really weird thing to add in there. But, um, well, so it sounds like his other books were not written anywhere near in the same way as Watership Down. Right. Yeah, and so we're going to get to that. There's a okay. pretty fun lore surrounding how that book came into existence, and so yeah, let's actually yeah let's take a step back then, and then just talk about him and talk about where the book came from. So he was born in 1920. So as I said, when he when he finally got Watership Down published, he was already in his early 50s, and his dad was a doctor, and his mom. He actually, in one of the interviews I read from him, said his mom was kind of lower class, but he didn't want to uh, have that be seen as a a negative against her. Actually, it led her to read him some stories just very simply and kind of gave her, gave him her love of things like Beatrix Potter. In fact, here's a quote from him from his childhood. This one interviewer asked, what kind of books did you read as a child? And he said, well, that's very interesting. I shall cast my mind back. Well, certainly Beatrix Potter. My mother used to read me Beatrix Potter, and there's a great deal of stuff there, you know. 19 major works of Beatrix Potter and four minor works. So, surprise, surprise, the guy who wrote Watership Down was really influenced by Beatrix Potter stories. This was when he was maybe three or four. He says she read Beatrix Potter aloud to me, and it was the ideal way of getting it, really, because sitting on her knee, you know, you could see the pictures. When I got a bit older, I could sometimes puzzle out a word or two from what she was reading. I enjoyed those bedtime sessions of Beatrix Potter very much. 
I wanted to read that quote in particular because we'll get to later kind of the lore surrounding where Watership Down came from. And I think that he had some strong nostalgia for his mother telling stories to him when he was a child reading to him, and he wanted to share that with his own kids. Later on, my mom used to read to us all the time, and I really enjoy reading and telling stories to the kids today. So it's just kind of connected to that. You know, you feel like that was something you were fond of when you were little, and so you want to share that with your kids. He also cites Winnie the Pooh as one of his great influences when we were young. And now we are six, which, you know, now we are six is one of the greatest children's poems ever written. Yeah. Yep. And this would carry over. So he, after he became famous, he would actually teach for a while. And he taught at the University of Florida in Gainesville. He also taught up in Chicago at a women's college, but he would try to teach poetry to students. And what he ended up doing was he would have a collection of poems that he thought were, he would call Tootsie Roll poems in the sense that maybe they weren't what everybody would consider to be the greatest poems ever written, but they were poems that students would actually want to read. And Milne was in there, uh, Wink and Blink and a Nod was in there, so a lot of children's poetry as a, a way to get people to actually enjoy reading poetry. And that was one of his things, is he wanted to have people actually love poetry as opposed to just read it academically. And I think, again, it's kind of rooted in his childhood here. I don't know if this is anything we want to litigate, he mentions there was a very popular book when I was little that he loved very much called Little Black I object. Sambo. I object okay. to your use of the word litigate. Thank you. Only Nathan is allowed I to use that word. I am squarely in the camp that you should use the word litigate. Okay. So we've litigated that. Huh. And then well, he says- Because I, like I feel like Nathan's trademarked it. I feel like you're taking the, we're, we're going to talk about it. Maybe even our- well, I mean, this is, this is, this gets us into the camp of Roald Dahl and everybody who accused him of being a racist. So here he says, and you know, that little black Sambo has ridiculous absurd, really, has come under a ban from certain people because he's black. Silly, I call it. And I've taken every opportunity of saying so. So those were his thoughts on the sort of certain, the cancel culture of today, which was already apparently happening back in the 1980s and 90s. So... He was very fond of that book, and he thought it was ridiculous that it got canceled just because the main character happened to be black, which... I think it got canceled in time for none of us to really grow up with it, right? Like I have never heard I don't, of I don't know the book. I, I'm, I'm familiar with it as a name. Like, I, I'm, I know that little Black Sambo was a thing, but I couldn't tell you who he is or what he does or what his gimmick is or... Like, I think maybe I've heard other books reference him. Like, you know, it's the kind of book that somebody in Jane Austen might say they're reading or something. That's the wrong time period, but you know what I mean. Like C.S. Lewis might say, or G.K. Chesterton might say, you know, as we've observed in the little black Sambo stories, that sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know a thing about it. So yeah, there you neither go. do I. Apparently though, one of the things that had the most influence on him was Dr. Doolittle, which again, surprise, surprise, you know? Yeah. So according to Wikipedia, yeah, critics of the time said that Bannerman presented one of the first black heroes in all of children's literature and regarded the book positively as positively portraying black characters in both text and pictures, especially in comparison to books of the era that depicted blacks as simple and uncivilized. It became an object of allegations of racism in the mid-20th century, however, due to the names of the characters being racial slurs for dark-skinned people. Hmm. And, the facts, and the fact that the illustrations were, as Langston Hughes put it, in the Piccaninny style. 
Both texts and illustrations have since undergone considerable revision. Written in 1899, I don't know. Yeah, and if you look on it the was Wikipedia, trying. well, you look on the Wikipedia and it has the 1900s cover of Little Black Sambo, and you can immediately understand why people may have been uncomfortable with that or may have eventually been uncomfortable with that. So, it's, he's, he's a little minstre- minstrel y. Yeah, yeah, he's he's very minstrel y. Black well, skin and the, yeah, anyway. Richard Adams was fond of the books. But most racist. Most, yeah, racist. Let's cancel him right now. Yeah. Most of all, though, he was fond of, like I said, Dr. Doolittle. So, in other words, he liked these stories that were focused on animals in the sense of <laughs> Beatrix Potter and Dr. Doolittle. I don't want somebody to think that I meant Little Sambo was in that category. <laughs> That's not what I was saying. It was, wow. yeah, thank you. Don't want to get myself canceled. As he grew older, he became very fond of, surprise, surprise, again, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He liked, fantasy. He liked fantasy novels. But he, when he got to college, he kind of kept English studies on, on the side. He said he really enjoyed reading history, and so that's what he focused on was history, and that's what he ended up majoring in. He had a brief stint where he took a break from college because he had to go join the Royal Air Force because, you know, they declared war on Germany and Hitler. And so he served in the Royal Air Force for a while, even though he never saw any action. But he was in World War II. And then finally, he came back to Oxford, finished his studies, and got his degree in history. And then ended up working for a long time as the Ministry of Housing and Local Government Office, where he worked up over 20 years to a senior post in the clean air section of the environmental department. And so that was what he did. He was a government servant who was very much concerned with environmental issues. Again, surprise, surprise, right? And Mm -hmm. in 1949, he married Barbara Elizabeth Ackland, and they had two daughters. It would be these daughters, though, that would be the inspiration for what would become Watership Down. The story goes that he would tell the girls the, the stories of these rabbits while they were driving in the car. And... His daughters would tell him parts of it that they thought shouldn't be forgotten, and so he would go and write them down. And eventually, they wanted him to write the story down in its entirety, and so he did. And it changed at that point quite a bit from the story that he would tell them in the car. It just took more shape, and he changed things to make it better. But once he got it all written down, they thought that he should try and publish it, and so he did. And as we already talked about at the beginning... A handful of editors turned it down at first, but finally he found Rex Collings, who just did publish it, and the rest is history. By 1974, he was able to quit the ministry and just devote himself full-time to writing. And that was kind of what he did with the rest of his life. He wrote, let's see if I can find a list of his other works. He had The Plague Dogs in 77, about two canine fugitives from an experimental lab. Traveler in 1988, a Civil War chronicle from the viewpoint of General Robert E. Lee's horse. <laughs> and he had Tales from the Watership Down, a sequel collection of stories. He also wrote his autobiography, The Day Gone By, which appeared in 1990. And then some other handful of stories and things as well. He wrote a story, I think, for a sort of humane society. Can't really tell his biography without stressing the fact that he was very concerned with environmental issues. Let me find this. Hang on just a minute. So he was the head of the RSPCA for a while, which is the Royal Society for the Protection Against Cruelty of against Animals, however you would say it, you know, the same as we would say the SPCA here. How weird is it that a British author 
writes a story from the perspective of Robert E. Lee's horse telling <laughs> I know. the story of the American Civil War. It's just like, what a bizarre choice. Yep. It is strange. So here you go. So two questions that this interviewer had about his involvement with environmental things. Do you keep in with any of the anti-animal testing groups? Yes, I have my contacts, but my quarrel is still the same. They're not active enough. They ought to amalgamate, of course, instead of being about six different groups and come together. Basically, his argument is they should all come together and fight as one. But he was really concerned about being active in the fight for the protection of animals and the environment. Like I said, he was the president of the RSPCA, and he left because... They were only concerned with what he says were doggy wogs and pussycats <laughs> and not other animals. So they won't even go abroad for things like tigers. I tried in vain to get the SPCA to go for the tigers. I can't remember what I finally fell out with the council on, but the basic point was that they would not campaign and my patience was exhausted. So all that to say is he was very much active in uh, animal rights. And you can see that in Watership Down for sure, mm -hmm. right? So those things that come th through fairly clearly in that book were actual interests of his and things that he would cling on to later in life as kind of his political stances that he would take. So anyways, yeah, so I think I've touched on the main things I wanted to get at here, which was his influences, where this story came from, and also how this echoed his own political interests later on in his life. One other thing to talk about, and you don't find a whole lot about this because he was a fairly quiet guy in general, but he did say this one thing in 74, the Times of London did an interview, and it said that he disliked modern novels that were dominated by the problems of their heroes or heroines who are constantly questioning their values. And he said, he went on to say, as an Orthodox Christian, I feel there really isn't a lot of agonizing to be done. I couldn't write a story about right and wrong. So... He claimed to be an Orthodox Christian and to have that be a significant influence in the way that he wrote stories, right? In other words, there wasn't uncertainty about what's right, what's wrong, because he knew what was right and what was wrong. In other words, it's, you know, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings. It's just always there as kind of the background. And right. so for him, in the same way, it's just kind of there. There's not any agonizing to be done over it. There's just the truth, right? Hmm. And so that's one of the things he said about his stories. At whether or not that comes through, we'll find. We we can talk about. We can litigate. Objection, Your Honor. Sustained or no? Uh, overruled. <sighs> Thank you. This is why I abandoned being a judge in the Ready Player <laughs> One one episode. Actually, that's not true. The reason I abandoned being a judge in Ready Player One is because our our, our prosecutor was making everybody feel sorry for our defense, or yeah, vice that versa. That was sad. So, I guess we could end by just briefly touching on where this fits in literary history. Technically, it's in the postmodern period, but this definitely is not a postmodern novel. It falls kind of in that British fantasy renaissance that you had. I mean, Tolkien was writing, what, 20 years before this or so? Mm-hmm. And so... Well, Dune was published uh, 10 years before this, if memory serves. Well, he never quotes Dune as a inspiration. You know, you don't have to. You just, everybody, that's just goes without saying. Yeah, it, it kind of goes without saying. It's yeah. the sandworm that runs beneath the surface of... <laughs> really? I think I see more of the Lord of the Rings and maybe even some C.S. <laughs> Lewis inspirations for this. I don't see much of the sandworm going on here. Hmm. The rabbits aren't wearing... Are you sure you know how to read, Brandon? 
They're not wearing those stilt suits or whatever they're called, the still suits. And there's the part where they steal all of Fiverr's water and then Yeah, and then yeah, they're getting high on spice. Mm-hmm. There is the part at the end where Hazel becomes a sandworm god. Forgot about that. Yeah. So that probably well, kinda. I mean I know, actually kinda. <laughs> it's not that far off. <laughs> okay. Obviously it's silly to say he was influenced by Dune. But what I would say is it's uh, equally obvious that Frank Herbert and Richard Adams were both drinking smoking from the same, the same things, smoking some of the same stuff and drinking some of the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're both concerned about the environment and the way that modern culture is shaping uh, culture through its treatment of the environment. Right. So, well, and I would say that they're both one step removed from pure myth. What I mean by that is he explicitly quotes Joseph Campbell in this book and somebody like Tolkien would have been just drawing on the primary sources. Whereas Richard Adams is already, and and also Frank Herbert, they're both already in the era where all the primary sources have been kind of uh, amalgamated and and codified by people like Tolkien. And so he's going about what he's going about with a little bit more self-awareness perhaps, and a little bit more of a lineage to draw on than even Tolkien 20 years before. That's true. That's interesting. So that kind of places him, I guess, in the same, he's, like you said, he's drinking the same water as Herbert. Yeah. But I think he's- The Cambellian sort of stuff in the, oh, Freud's great predecessor. What's his name? Uh, Young or- Jung, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Jung, Jung, yeah. Did you say predecessor? You mean- uh, Successor, sorry. Successor, yeah. Yeah. One star. Yeah, I know. I messed up. Sorry. So, yeah, so you have that that was going on with the psychological myth-making that was happening that led to this sort of fantasy, which is strange to think of as as sharing that sort of vein in common with Dune, but I think, yeah, I mean, you're right. I don't think you're right. You're right. And then also it shares in the uh, sort of folk traditions that just in the way that Arthur would find its way into the common parlance and so that would just be easy to reference Arthur and have your stories be Arthurian. The folk traditions where you had talking animals, like would make an appearance in with Chanticleer and the Canterbury Tales, and then you would have other versions like for children, for the Beatrix Potter, would finally get to, you get to the modern era where it would be fairly just common parlance to do that in a story. You can see that happening here too with the anthropomorphic rabbits and things like that. And it had been happening before then. Roald Dahl would do it with What's his, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so this definitely shares in that sort of folk tradition becoming just part of the culture as capitalism takes everything and just makes it where it can awesome. be masticated and spat out to the masses. Mm-hmm. Thanks, capitalism. Thanks, capitalism. If we wanted to give a very pessimistic Marxist reading of how this happens. <laughs> I guess we did. I guess we did. I, I don't know why, but yesterday I was bored, and so I was reading. I mean, I know why I was sitting in the in a lobby for a long time, but I was reading Oscar Wilde's essay on Marxism, which was wild. Hmm. He was a wild, staunch man. Marxist. It's socialism. It was on socialism. He wanted there to be socialism. It's because I saw somebody post that quote that everybody's always loves by him, where it says, you know... Um, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people merely exist. That's all. Mm. 
Mm. And I was like, where? I, at first, I was saying, that's probably not even Oscar Wilde. It's one of those that's just made up. Mm-hmm. But then I found Attributed. it. And it's, yeah, but I found it. And it's in this book on socialism. And what he's arguing is that the, so, the capitalist state makes it where everybody's just worried about buying things. And so you can't be really authentic. I'm going to have to go get my charger. My computer's going to die. This is like, for some reason, my com- battery's draining really fast. Five minute water break. Me and Jake will, will vamp. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I trust you guys. For bathroom break? Yeah, no, that, that works. No, nah, I was going to ask for, but I can just text Amanda and make her. Water's on its way. Yeah, Let's yeah, vamp. Yeah. Well, boy, Brandon sure is fat. You know, I was hoping that we could get through an episode without needing to comment on it, but it just needed to be said. Well, he kind of rolled away to go absorb his cord. Yeah, oh. it was a really striking thing how he did. Yeah, it. so it's just like if anyone's ever what seen do do? the Blob or any it's of its kind of sequels. like rolls and consumes things as it goes and gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, Brandon doesn't yeah. actually have to eat anymore. He he, he just, just absorb like he he just rolls through the meat section and the the supermarket and. Thanks. Just kind of absorbs things. Yeah. Hey, you're back. Oh, hey, he's hey. back. Yeah. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> I trust up, you guys were talking about really nice things, right? Oh, yeah. No, we were yeah. just the, uh, yeah, of course. We, you know, we were discussing a mutual friend. Yep. Must be a big fatty. He or she is. Undeniable. It is undeniable. I think that was it for context. That's all I had. Don't want to put you on the spot, well, I guess I am putting you on the spot, but can you give us a complete history of all animal stories? What a complete history of all animal stories? <laughs> I mean, does this uh, begin to... with Aesop? And... Yeah, I mean, like I said, you go back to the folk traditions or the, pr- the tradition of Proverbs would often take from animals. You even see it in scripture, look to the ant, you know, oh, sluggard, slug, ants and slugs. Get it? Ants and slugs, yeah. But you would have those proverbs and those folk tales and traditions eventually taken up. So one of the most famous instances would be Chanticleer mm-hmm. and the nun priest tale and the Canterbury tales. Have either of you guys read that one? We're going to see it yeah. make an appearance fairly soon because we're going to read the tale of the dung cow, which is mm-hmm. based on that uh, story. And you would also have animals that would make appearances in, like with romantic poetry, with the Ode to the Nightingale, which would just draw from older poems. But really, it would mainly be like in the folk traditions or children's literature that you would have anthropomorphic animals like this. And that prior to Richard Adams, that w- it, it wasn't like he was revolutionizing anything here. So right. you think about E.B. White with Charlotte's Web. You know, definitely doing similar things. And that was before this was written. I would say the way that he kind of makes a mark for himself in this tradition and trying to think, and I'm trying to think if there's anybody who really does something like this before him is that he writes this story, like he said, and like we've talked about, the critics turned it down because it really wasn't written for children, right? Mm -hmm. The language is a little hard for children. And so he might be one of the first ones to actually take that anthropomorphic tradition and make it where it makes it serious for adults, you know, kind of gives it the 
Herbert treatment where he took the fantasy and elevated it more for, or the Tolkien treatment as well, you know? So, cause I'm trying to think, and I can't off the top of my head, think of any stories and maybe somebody out there knows something that well, I don't. The other thing that strikes me is how minimalistic he is in his anthropomorphization. So you have uh, human character traits, but it's as rabbitish as that's that's actually why I asked the question because that whole the degree of anthropomorphization or or not fascinates me. And yeah. there's there's kind of an uncanny valley type thing where if an animal book tries to sit in the middle somewhere, it can be really unpleasant. For me personally, Call of the Wild is a book that I've had to read m- numerous times in high school and things like that, and I've never enjoyed it precisely because it tries to. It's like from the animal's point of view, yeah. But but it tries to give you as much of he's he's just a dog as possible, and I think I always preferred the Wind in the Willows style. They're driving cars and they have clothes, and it's just thoroughly they smoke and. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Fixed meals it, and And so I always as a kid liked Redwall. I guess I'll talk about this more in baggage because they were mice with swords and stuff that lived in castles and things, but I always thought that Watership Down was going to be this kind of pure this is just what it would be like to be a rabbit. And it's not, and it is, and it it has this whole weird mythology and you know, spoiler alert, our hero goes to Rabbit Valhalla and all this kind of thing. Like, it's not... Anyways, that was why I asked the question, because I'm just... I'm intrigued by... And I'm wondering whether he was innovative or whether he wasn't innovative in the degree to which he anthropomorphized. Kind of making it more like animal realism. Yeah. No, it's, there it's, is... There definitely is an element of that that I... I suppose E.B. White did it a bit, right? With Charlotte's Web. Maybe White's actually not far away from this because it's 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 less like what if Charlotte was a human being and more like yeah. what if an actual spider could talk, which is what made Stuart Little so weird. Yes, and then Stuart Little is completely in the fantastical, fully yeah. anthropomorphized direction. So all that to say, yeah, people had done this. I mean, and Beatrix Potter did it too. Like Squirrel Nutkin is a squirrel, right? So then Beatrix Potter is a good example of what I'm talking about because they wear clothes, at least in the illustrations, like Peter famously loses his jacket or something like that. Yeah, so there there are human traits to it, right? But he here is giving, it's almost like he's giving human consciousness to animals, but still having them be rabbits. Right. Right. Which is like, which is one of my, so I think it's fine. It's a fine story and I know a lot of people like it, but there's the Green Ember series. Mm -hmm. You guys heard of this? Yes. I don't know anything about it, but I, my, I know it's a my thing. Isn't the hero named Hazel? Something like that, yeah. My biggest criticism of that book is that, at least with Redwall, you still got the sense that those were animals, right? But with the Green Ember series, it's just like, they could have easily just been people. Right. And it would have been a very similar story. It, you don't lose much except for the power to jump really high. That is really essential, and that's one of the things that marks... That book, even oh, from Redwall, is that I just think the author lacked the imaginative ability to really make it pop. It was just more like, ah, rab- kids like rabbits, so I guess let's I'll make some, them... Let's put some swords and shields and things on them. And like I said, I mean, my kids enjoy the books, so it's not like... It's Heather. Heather and Pickett. Yeah. That's the name of the Green Ember people? So yeah. Rabbits, whatever. I don't want to get a whole bunch of people mad at me just because I'm 
offering a criticism of that book series, but I've not read it. My kids, Amanda's read it with the kids and loved it. They all have, but and what they, they all, all liked it. it. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- yeah, I think it's, I think it's fine. But that was my big criticism of it is that he tried to do the anthropomorphism and didn't really make it completely necessary. Like he put, he it could have just been Arthur and his knights, and it would have right. been fine too. It would work just as well. So. All that to say, there is a level of realism here where this couldn't be Arthur and his knights. No. Right? right. There's no way this could be people doing this this sort of realism mixed with the anthropomorphism as well in a way that not everybody can always do as successfully. So it's it's a really neat trick and I'm sure we'll yeah. we'll talk a lot about it. But well, any other contextual thoughts before we call out our patrons and no. I think that's it. All right. And we are calling you out, patrons. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Really, thanks a lot. Thanks a million. Actually, fun fact, a lot that we have a robust discussion going on in Patreon right now amongst people who are trying to decide what they want to nominate to motivate us to get to the 2K mark where uh, you can listen to last week's episode you can hear us make up this idea basically you get us to 2k number one most important thing we get to pay brandon a little bit which would be great number two we get to make brandon read ready player two and indeed all of us read ready player two number three we the get to do a deep dive we, I just yes, jumped, the booking I just wanted to jump on it the booking yep. litigates is that <laughs> what we should call call it re great litigation relitigate yep. the relitigating gatening a book. And people have been talking about what book they'd like to make us do. It looks like Anna Kay, Anna Karenina by old Leo Tolstoy is far and away the popular favorite. But you got some dark horses in there. We've got more than one Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, Huckleberry Finn. Some Huck Finns and people that would like us. Some joker said, go back and do Tolst- uh, and Tolkien time. again. To which Brandon yeah. wittily replied, if we delve any deeper into Tolkien, we will unearth a Balrog. That was pretty funny. Anyway, yeah, y- you could be part of that discussion right now. All you got to do, join patreon.com forward slash the booking. Join it for $10. We'll call out your name, man. Yeah. Like we're about to do. Mm-hmm. And why don't you guys say the name of the book that you think we should definitely spend months relitigating? After I say the names of the patrons. Ready? Oh, yeah. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Dracula. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Frankenstein. You know, Jake, you had a real opportunity to throw Brandon under the bus there. I did. Yeah, I did. But I don't do that to my friends. So no. No, no, no. I'm you there never for do you. That to <laughs> uh, <laughs> little Anthony Cigar Store. Dracula. The Immortal Tulsi E. Frankenstein. Oakley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew Nestor of the Lovebirds, the Keepmaster, David's Morning Trucking, Frankenstein, John and Joe, Louis Max, Jane Giddy, Lucas, and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Having Some Other Beth, Consul Prime Adam, Nathan on Me, Ryan Red Avenger, and Judith the Blades of Justice, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Dan and Tiberius, Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, Lavender's Blue, Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, I love you too. 
No constrictor bear cheap. The fair and free of the Indians. Golden Age life and liberty. This is Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. Rachel. 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 Midnight Ninja Ellen, Return of the Jedediah, Jay Brack and Ruin, The Rider of Dawn, Dragon's Day, Warm and Love Beats, Manny, 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 Sweet Jimmy Sunshine, Tower of the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light, Cold Steel Cody, Jackal the Librarian, Barbarian, John Bumadilla, Bump, Diggling, Captain Tennille, His Maid, Saxophone Alex, The Other Saxophone Alex, and Dub Dub Day, Ryan the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who no longer are stuck in the cold, please send you Ben Solo and Kylo Ren, John the Cosmic King, Matthew the Mind Flayer, and here, okay, get your gun. Dracula. Man, I remember, I remember the the Halcyon days of when Annie, are you okay? Get your gun was a new one. It feels like that was just like a couple episodes ago, but we got a bunch that come after Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Mm, we got Flight wow. of the Valerie, Dracula. We got Thor Ragnarok, Dracula. We got Steven, Steven, dot dot dot, Frankenstein. We got Peglodon, Frankenstein, Dracula. We got a Christopher the Flower Hulk. Frankenstein. Dracula. We got Lady of the Crystal Lake. Frankenstein. Dracula. We got Ian the Death of Marian, Lord of Death. Frankenstein. Dracula. And I have three new ones that have signed up that would that we are going to welcome to the fold. So first Whoa. of all, we ha- we've got a longtime supporter who's finally made the leap into the donor shout out club. And so I'm very excited. To, inter- to introduce to the donor shout-out family. Well, her name is Emily, but what shall we call her, boys? House of M. She's a house. I was just reading a little bit about House of M. It's a thing. It's a marvel. I clicked on some article. Well, a fun fact about Emily is that she wrote a play of Mansfield Park, and she's trying to get it produced. So, really? Was it called House of maybe, M? Maybe. It should have been. That's a really good point. So I, I think we do. We should give her a Jane Austen associated name, like Mansemily. That's not a good portmanteau at all. Emila. <laughs> <laughs> Emila. Man, I don't know if I can get behind that. Northanger Emily. Goodly done, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Goodly done, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, she's not doing poorly. Night Emily. <laughs> Night Emily. A man in possession of an Emily. That yeah, is in want sense. of nothing. He is in want of nothing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good say. A man in possession of Emily is in want of nothing. Ah, I don't know if Emily's married or whatever. I don't think so. But because we, we've known Emily for a while. Do we? But yes, I will. I will remind you of the details off mic. Jane Austen related. We got to do this. I thought that was it. A man in want in possession of an Emily is in want of nothing. Hey, we'll see if Emily likes that because I feel like the lady has to be okay with that. But we can we can certainly try it out. So, a man in possession of Emily is in want of nothing. That's for Emily M. And now I've got another patron to welcome. Her name is Emily. <laughs> Yay! Oh. We got all the Emilys. Oh, yeah. A man in possession. It's all about the Emilys, baby. <laughs> all about the Emilys, baby. M&Ms. Well, what do we call the second Emily? We can't just call her the second Emily. And we can't call her the real slim Emily. The real slimily. <laughs> the real M-Shady. 
The, the real M. Shady's not bad at that. All right. We'll say a man in possession of an Emily is in want of nothing. And we'll say the real M. Shady. Please stand up. Austin and Marshall Mathers, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that Emily H. is a huge fan of Eminem. Just guessing. Um, and we've got one more patron. So, okay. I, I, those are both like first drafts. I would love to hear from the Emilys if you like those or not, because I don't want to stick you with a Slim Shady reference if you don't like it. And I don't want to yeah. stick you with a, she, you'd be great to marry if you don't like yeah. it. Yeah, Colin Wine. <laughs> My brain made that into a name. <laughs> Colin Wine? <laughs> me Colin too, Wine. actually. It took me a second <laughs> to figure out, even yeah. after you. Like, yeah. who's who's Colin Wine? I think oh, maybe yeah. it's because I had Austin on the brain, which means Pride and Prejudice, which means Colin Firth. Yeah. And... Anyway, or, or we've got Collins. another person to uh, introduce. His name is Benjamin. It's all Benjamin. about the Benjamins, baby. All about the Benjamins? It's all about the Benjamins. All about the Benjamin. Because there's only one of them. The yeah, yeah. yeah. It's okay. all about the Benjamin. All right. Well, that was easy. Okay. Well, welcome, Emily number one. Welcome, Emily number two. And welcome, Benjamin, to the donor shout out family. We appreciate it. And Brandon appreciates it. Because presumably you heard us talk about how we wanted to pay him, and that's what made you take the plunge. So, thank you. Aren't, Brandon is currently doing like a, a courteous bow. What does one do? What does one do with one's body when one appreciates something? You bow. Yeah, Brandon is, is currently prostrating himself on the ground. That's right. I am weeping. Yep. Yep. Getting out the sackcloth. Getting out the ashes. Okay, I think that's all we got. That's the end of the show. We'll be back Best. to talk more about Watership Down next week. Best episode ever. Yep. I guess some somebody better say something pithy to so we have a good note to end on. One, two, three, go. I don't know, Nathan, man. Why do I feel like everybody's waiting on me to say something? <laughs> Jake, say something pithy. It's got to be related to this guy, to the, the, the guy we just talked about. Benjamin? No, Richard Adams. Oh. Do we ever even say his name? <laughs> I was wondering I as you talked. That too. I was like, <laughs> I think we've gone a half an hour talking about this guy and we haven't actually said his name. And like the good podcaster I am, I just let it slide and <laughs> they can look him up. It or was Richard you? Adams. What if somebody been, could be like, who was it? I've been waiting <laughs> be the, the whole time. <laughs> that should be the uh, title to this episode. It was Richard Adams. <laughs> 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 like one of our Agatha Christie episodes. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.